Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more I'm at Shea Hart uh, with Peter Hart, the eminent Peter Hart. The comedian. The comedian. You go off and do your comedy. Leave the history to me. Sounds right to me, mate. <laughs> so, uh, now that we're into our uh, 204th episode, or it could be 5th or 6th, depending if we move it about, what are we going to be doing today, Pete? Well, it's it's the 16th DLI, and it's got sweariness in it. It's more bloody ridges. And it's the 1944 uh, uh, campaign uh, in Italy uh, for the Durham Light Infantry, a fine body of men that we've been following through their trials and tribulations. And it's based on my lovely book, Footslogger or Footsloggers. Can't remember which at the moment. Footsloggers. Thank you. <laughs> Glad someone's got their finger on the pulse. As you mentioned, it was 1944, and that autumn, skirmish followed skirmish, sometimes flaring up into a fully-fledged battle, which swelled the trickle of casualties into a veritable torrent. Purple prose warning, Gary. <laughs> yeah. Now, as each river was followed by the next ridge, the men joked that the Germans had a fleet of bulldozers working flat out to create ever more obstacles in their path. But it was assuredly no joke for those on the front line. No, it, it, it wasn't, was it? Um, um, uh, but but uh, there's one thing that we should mention, because uh, the, one of the people who's most involved in the, this next story uh, arrives. Who's that? Who am I thinking of? As a new officer comes to take charge of B Company, who is it? Well, he's not the only one. There's a, a group of replacement officers, but I think you're the, referring to the most significant uh, of them, which was Major Laurie Stringer, who was placed in command of B Company. So who is he? He was the son of a farmer who'd worked in banking before joining the extended... Was he a cockney? Before joining the extended family business in Spitalfields uh... Market. Oh, I think I've given him to you. Oh, that was a mistake. Uh, now, he, 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 he sounded quite posh, Gary. <laughs> he was called up as a private soldier in early 1940, uh, but the, the system seemed to work, if you, th- if you think the system. So just like Gary, he was identified as a potential officer. No, not like Gary. And, uh, and, and he eventually gets commissioned into the Essex Regiment in 1941. Uh, he doesn't go straight to war, does he? Um, 
No, he specialised in battle drill training and uh, became an instructor at the battle school at Barnard Castle, I believe. But Barnard, I think. <laughs> um, uh, that's where you go if you've got bad eyesight, isn't it? I think it is. I certainly had trouble reading it. Now, by 1943, he was a major and was posted to the military mission in Durban, South Africa, where he helped establish the battle school near Pretoria. Now... It, so he's a he's a training expert, but but he's got a bit of something about him so, because he's razor keen, isn't he, to join to to to, to actually put it into practice. Some some real battle experience after all this. Well, it's years by this time of theoretical training, and when he's offered an active service post, and he jumps at it. And uh, as I say, that's uh, he joins the sixteenth DLI, uh, and he commands B Company. Now. Um, we can't, we're not going to go into all the battles that are fought in this, uh, this, this period. It's the Gothic line and after. Uh, why, why not, do you think? Too many. Too many. Too many. Too, but, yeah. But, well, what, should, what do you think we should do? Well, I think we should uh, look at the, 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 the most, notes. <laughs> the most vivid, vividly recalled battles. And one of those uh, took place at, uh, I'm going to struggle with this, Balignano Spur. Yeah. On the evening of the 10th of October, 1944. All the worst battles seem to start quietly. Yeah, yeah, this one does, because the day before, 1445, the 16th DLI are ordered to move up from Verrucchio to relieve the 2nd Hampshire's of 128 Brigade uh, on the recently captured Monte Gallo Spur. And surprise, surprise, what's in front of them, Gary? What do you think's in front of them? It's not a German counterattack. What is it? Another valley and ridgeline. Yeah. And next They've been morning, busy with them bulldozers, Gary. <laughs> next morning, Russell Collins was ordered p- to patrol forward to the village of La Croqueta, lying beneath the Balignano Spur. Yeah, so he's 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 doing that all morning, uh, and uh, uh, that's the morning of the uh, the tenth. Now, uh, Laurie Stringer, let's talk about him, Major Laurie Stringer he and B Company. They move up on, uh, into La Croqueta, the village of La Croqueta. Um, but uh, when they send another patrol forward up onto Balignano, Balignano Spur in front of them, they get a bit of a bloody nose, don't they? Uh, and and what's, what's apparent? Well, it's, it's absolutely clear that the Germans were there in strength. And at this point, Colonel Dennis Worrell arrived and he assessed the situation. And this is how Major Laurie Stringer of B Company describes it. We had another group and Dennis Worrell said to me, Laurie, I want your company to go out in the attack at 1900 hours. You'll have artillery support and you'll be able to call for artillery support once the operation starts. This was a company attack. I had supporting me a platoon from another company commanded by Winkler Collins. That's uh, Russell Collins uh, uh, that we mentioned earlier, who'd done the patrol the same day. He was one of the finest soldiers in the battalion who'd already got a military cross. He was attached to me because the feature I would have to attack was a very large one. It had to be a frontal attack, although I did ask Collins to go round on the right flank while my company went forward. You had a battalion O group, then you'd have a company O group, and I was going to attack with two platoons forward and one platoon in reserve. HR was to start with a barrage at 1900. The two platoons were to be divided by a sunken road. I was going to have a creeping barrage in front of me. I was in between the two leading platoons, just a little bit back behind them. And Dick Hewlett, that's Richard Hewlett, uh, and his platoon were behind me. I didn't have a forward observation officer with me. I was told he was at a vantage point, and if I wanted to call for fire, I could call for extra fire with a very pistol. So that sets the scene. Now, you don't really need to, in your mind's eye, just think of a ridge, 
Uh, it's got a bit of a village at right hand side at the top, and it's got a sunken road going up it. And that's all you really need. There'll be no map. <laughs> now, Stringer ordered the newly arrived officer, Lieutenant Stanley Waymark, to take his platoon to the left. That's the left hand. That's left of the road, yeah, of the sunken road, yeah. Sergeant Norman Redding would lead the right hand platoon. While Lieutenant Dick, that's Richard, Hewlett's platoon, <laughs> was held back in reserve. It's my favourite name, Dick. <laughs> but Russell Collins was not happy to be thrown into action again so soon after his earlier patrol forward to La Croqueta. Why? Because what's, what's, this is a brave, thrusting young officer. What, what's beginning to happen? It's really interesting because he, he was... Uh, couldn't be faulted for his conduct earlier in the campaign. What, what's going on? Well, he's beginning to show signs of wear and tear from being constantly flung into the battle at the sharp end. And this is what Lieutenant Russell Collins of A Company says. We'd had a fairly taxing day, and then it was announced that B Company was going to put in an attack on this Balignano spur. But they had to be reinforced by an additional platoon. And guess whose platoon was deputed to reinforce them? Mine. I felt that was really decidedly unfair, and I thought Colonel Worrell had really presumed upon us a bit too much. I said so to the B Company commander, Major Laurie Stringer. I protested, and he upheld my protest. He went and complained to the Colonel, but Colonel Worrell wouldn't hear of it, and he said, No, his platoon has to go. When I told the lads that we were going to have to do this attack, there were groans all round, because we'd been the leading platoon all day, and there are nine or ten platoons in a battalion. Then one of the older soldiers in my platoon, a man called Corporal Vic, a very nice, quiet, gentlemanly man, a section commander, took me on one side and said, You know, sir, I don't think I can go on. I've had enough. I don't think I can make it. We've had so much. I said... Well, I know the feeling, Corporal Vic. I feel just the same. But I've also already represented to the CO that we ought to be relieved of this. And they've said, no, you've got to do it. We can't let the side down now. We must go ahead. He said, well, all right. And so off we went. I want you to remember that name, uh, uh, Corporal Vic. Corporal, his, his name's Corporal Harry Vic. Uh, he, he, he didn't want to go forward, did he? Um, no, the men were tired and uh, they didn't want to go forward again. It was yet again for them. Yeah. But Collins and the phlegmatic Corporal Harry Vick could have stood for their whole generation. They couldn't let the side down. So off they went into the maelstrom once more. Now, Laurie Stringer was with his headquarters section behind the two leading platoons as they all set off at Balignano Ridge. Now, by now, it was getting towards dusk. And this is what Loris says. At 1900, we fixed bayonets and started advancing. Winkler Collins went off round to the right. We started going up the hill behind the barrage. It was pretty colossal. It was a pretty heavy barrage. It was moving and we had got to within 20, 25 yards of it. On the way up the hill, we took quite a lot of German prisoners. They came out of their slit trenches with their hands up. I remember feeling, oh, well, that's not too bad. We took a substantial number of prisoners initially. Hmm. Now, Hewlett was close by Stringer, in fact, too close for comfort, given an unfortunate incident with his Thompson gun. And this is Lieutenant Richard Hewlett of 12 Platoon B Company. I was towards the rear, in the middle, with Laurie Stringer. I had a Tommy gun, and guess what? It didn't work. In fact, trying to make it work, I very nearly shot Laurie Stringer early on. Tommy guns are very sensitive to mud. They're all, light, all right as long as the weather's good. We had an enormous amount of rain. I chucked it away and got my pistol out. 
So, so far, so good. Uh, uh, but once they pushed about 400 yards up the ridge, uh, the German resistance, it, it gradually begins to increase. That seems to happen a lot with the Germans. Uh, and like so many officers before him, uh, Stringer, he finds that he's too busy leading his men to feel much personal fear. And this is what he says. We're under small arms fire and Nebelwerfers. That's a German mortar. Uh, terrifying heart. <laughs> <laughs> if only I'd read things ahead. Terrifying high-trajectory mortars, which the Germans had recently brought out. They made a whizzing, terrifying noise, and their explosive fire was quite substantial. They were on the reverse slope, and they were coming right over. I say this with very, very great humility. When you're leading men in action, you cease to be concerned about yourself, and you're worried solely about your men. To say that I wasn't frightened would be an exaggeration. No human being would like to be in that set of circumstances. But I didn't let it worry me because I was concerned about managing the men that I had under my command and trying to keep the casualty level as low as possible. The job had to be done and I was going to do it to the best of my ability. It looked to me that we were having success on the right-hand platoon. That was Sergeant Redding's platoon on the right side, the other side of the sunken road. Yet we were beginning to find the opposition stronger, and I called for more artillery fire with my very pistol, firing the range-coloured very lights. Quite a heavy crunch came down onto the top of the objective. It was splendid. Wow. Meanwhile, Russell Collins had embarked upon his flanking attack. He was still upset, but doing his best, even though his experiences of battle thus far had made him sceptical of Colonel Worrell's plan of attack. And this is Lieutenant Russell Collins of A Company. A ghastly error was that a frontal attack was made on this spur. The company was set out in line to approach this on a broad front. It was a hopeless plan. It must have been the CO's plan. My platoon was put on the right flank. On the top of the crest was a church and all these other buildings along the street to the left. We set off on the due signal and made our way forward and up around to the right, heading towards the church. There was a tremendous lot of shooting on the central part of the attack, but there was no direct opposition where we were, which was obviously the better line of approach. We should have gone for an objective like that at one end and then swept through the village from one end to the other. Now, covered by the main attacks, that's the stringers' attack, they proceed pretty well undisturbed until they were almost up to the village of Balignano, up on the ridge spur. And then Collins gets his men ready for the final assault. This is what he says. When we got within about 50 yards of the church, I deployed some of the heavy weapons, the anti-tank projector, that's the Piat, because that's quite good to give covering fire amongst buildings and machine gun positions. I sent one section, led by Corporal Vic, because he just happened to be in the right place, to lead the assault on the church, and if possible, to get in it. Everything went well, exactly according to plan. We were ready to move forward. The poor chap, Corporal Vic, he got up there, whether it was the stress and he just forgot his drill at that moment, instead of taking some precautions, a quick look round the door, throw a grenade in to establish whether there was somebody in there before you go in, he just walked in the church door. I could see him. They were waiting for him inside and he was shot. That was the end of him. And uh, I think, you know, poor old Harry Vick. Just remember that name. We... Uh... Something to think about that, I think. Anyway, the main German defensive fire, that's not on them, is it? That's, that's on B Company as they toiled up the hill. And this is what Laurie Stringer says. 
I couldn't see what Collins was doing. There was a lot of heavy undergrowth and he was well away at the church end of the spur. Mine was more open. They were haystacks. I got up to them and I saw some Germans going to the haystacks and I fired into them. We made progress and I was feeling reasonably happy. Then from the left-hand platoon, one of Waymark's men came to me and said, Mr. Waymark's been hit, sir. Carry on, carry on. You can't do anything about it. Seeing success on the right, I thought, now, one of the principles of war is that you reinforce success where you can and not failure. Well, this is the time when I ought to launch my reserve platoon to support Sergeant Redding, who had made initial progress to the right-hand side of the road. So I got the message to Dick Hewlett, and he went into action on the right-hand side. That's the right-hand side of the sunken road. Um, is that how Richard Hewlett remembered it? No, not quite. Um, but it was near enough not to disturb the trajectory of uh, of our narrative. And this is Lieutenant Richard Hewlett of 12 Platoon B Company. There was a machine gun firing towards us from over on the right. Laurie Stringer said, For God's sake, take your men and go and silence that machine gun. He must have gone on, still on the track as far as I knew. We had to climb up out of the sunken road and onto the hill. We were all running, hopefully in the right direction, perhaps slightly more to the right than we should have been. There didn't seem to be any way one could approach it absolutely direct. The only cover of any sort was on the right. I was hopefully making for these small trees and bushes and things to get some sort of cover to get up the hill. I had difficulty in keeping my men together because there were vineyards on it with wires stretching out. People's small packs got caught in the wires and I was concentrating on trying to help them to disentangle them and get them in a state where they could be firing their weapons. Now, it's, it's another officer who's he's got his mind on his men. He's trying to sort them out. He's trying to get them firing because that, that, that obviously it would help. Uh, um, and he's almost oblivious, isn't he, of, of the fact that they're under fire, that he's, he's in, in incredible danger. Um, uh, but he is in incredible danger. What was the clue that he had? Um, <laughs> he actually does get hurt. Would you like to introduce him? And this is what he says. It was whilst doing that that I got hit. It was like being hit by a double-decker bus. The weight of a bullet is unbelievable when it hits you. You can't shake it off. It hits solid bone like a sledgehammer right through the knee joint. That was real agony. The leg bones were broken and it was hanging off at the wrong angle. Any move was agony, as you can probably imagine. I said, don't leave me here. Dump me down in the sunken ditch. And they did. Appleby must have been one of them. But when he, uh, when we got to the ditch, somebody had taken some prisoners. Appleby and two German prisoners were carrying me on this old shutter. That's what they put me on. It was then that mortar bombs started and Appleby was hit, as were the two German prisoners carrying me. They dropped me immediately. Darkness was approaching. It got pitch dark. I was completely alone. I could hear Germans walking around looking for their own wounded. And I thought, oh, my God, they're going to find me. I'm going to end up a prisoner of war unless I die from lack of blood first. What a way to end the war. That was the awful, depressing feeling I had. I was losing quite a lot of blood lying to the right-hand side of this road. And at this point, while we think about that, we'll take a short break. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, so there we are. We, we left, uh, we left uh, Dick Hewlett down and out. And uh, now other men have to take up the fight, don't they? Now, one of those was Corporal Kenneth Lovell. Uh, and uh, he he was uh, they had to take out this machine gun that's causing all the trouble. And this is what Corporal Kenneth Lovell B Company says: We hit very heavy opposition, and my platoon took a number of casualties, including Lieutenant Hewlett. Another officer told me to take the remainder of the platoon to the other side of the sunken road and try and work round from there. I led the chaps to go across the sunken road, and I jumped down straight into a trench with three Germans in it. They got their hands up before I got mine up, so I took three prisoners. It was a machine gun post covering the advance up the road. That's a lovely quote. I got my, I got my hands up there. Now, the attack was almost successful, almost, but not quite. Just as they seemed to have almost gained the summit of the ridge, the Germans struck back hard. And how far did they get to within the distance of the ridge? We don't know. They got forward about 400 yards. All right. And this is what Major Laurie Stringer says. By this time, we had got up fairly close to the crest of this feature. He says, about 50 yards off the crest of the enemy, counterattack from the reverse slope and from the left-hand side of the feature. Why are you gesticulating at me? They had a machine gun firing in enfilade. I was beginning to have a lot of casualties and the situation was beginning to look serious. The whole advance had been stopped and we were beginning to fall back. I could see we were having heavy casualties, so I gave the order to withdraw. To describe that situation now in cold blood is very difficult. It was pretty chaotic. I'd actually got up to the top of the feature and then I came back down the sunken road. 
Hmm. Well, now on his way back, Laurie Stringer earned the undying gratitude of the abandoned Richard Hewlett, and he goes on to say this. Some way down, I almost kicked someone, and I saw that it was Dick Hewlett. I stopped, and I could see that part of his leg had been shot away. He was still conscious, and he said, Leave me, sir, leave me, leave me, leave me. I didn't leave him. I lifted him. I was strong then. I lifted him and put him on my shoulder. And I shall never forget the blood went right the way through my clothing, my vest, and onto my body as well. The Germans weren't coming down towards us, but they were firing from the tops of the slope, a distance of about 50 to 60 yards. I carried him. He was screaming with pain. I carried him for about 50 yards, and then he became too heavy. Fortunately, I happened to see my sergeant major, and there was an old Italian outhorse there with a door. I put Dick Hewlett down on the ground, and we lifted him, we lifted him onto this barn door. We carried him back to the start line. Now, <laughs> it's uh, that again, Richard. And this is not a surprise, is it, Gary? The, the, uh, I mean, the guy, the, he's probably in and out of consciousness. Uh, Richard Hewlett's version of, of this is is is, is pretty confused. It, it it is, and this is what he says. I don't know how long it was before Major Stringer and Company Sergeant Major Clark came up. I might well have been unconscious. I can't remember if I said, leave me. Shot, I suppose. I must have been mad if I said that. They had difficulty in carrying me because I was in such agony with any movement of my leg. They decided to tie my legs together with my own boot laces, which was a very good idea because it kept the whole thing more or less solid. The only thing I remember then is getting to a regimental aid post while I would, where I was lying on a stretcher. With the best intentions in the world, Padre Meek poured scalding hot tea all over me as a blessing and a comfort. It was too hot, I couldn't swallow, and it went all down my throat. Oh, actually, yeah, a bit more. All down his front, not his throat. All oh, down his front, sorry. <laughs> throat would have been better, <laughs> but he'd still have been in trouble, wouldn't he? Yeah. Now, he was in a really bad way with a fractured femur and, uh, and a kneecap, which required several operations and blood transfusions, all complicated by the onset of dysentery that further ravaged his weakened body. Listen to this, Pete. His weight dropped from 12 stone to 7 stone. I remember he was being quite a tall chap as well. And evacuation back to the UK was inevitable. He would be in hospital for the rest of the war. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't think his leg ever really recovered. I mean, how would it? Uh, anyway. Uh, so what's what's happening up on the right? So Russell Collins, he's still up in the village itself near the church. And he's there and it becomes obvious to him that the main attacks failed. So, So what does Russell Collins do? There we were at the church. We hadn't actually taken it. I had to think of what to do. Suddenly, I became aware that everything was very quiet. I listened and looked to my left, and I couldn't see anything. I'd had no message over the blower, but it became apparent that the company had withdrawn, aborted the attack, and all the rest gone home. I'd got no message, and there I was with my solitary platoon on the edge of the village. We returned to the start line when we realised we were alone in the battle. Now, it had been a sobering experience for Laurie Stringer, uh, the theoretical tactical expert required to carry out an uh, unsubtle frontal assault by Colonel Dennis Worrell. And this is Major Laurie Stringer once more. My company had been cut about quite a lot, 20 or 30 wounded and 8 or 9 killed. Sergeant Redding died, Stanley Waymart was killed and Dick Hewlett was wounded. Collins actually got up to the church area. They eventually had to retire as well because of this German counterattack. I think Russell thinks if, if, if we'd handled it better, 
We might have got the feature the first time. He thinks we might have done the whole operation to a right flanking attack rather than attacking from the front. Then we might have had a greater degree of success. And he might well be right. I was very depressed, but I didn't let it influence my outward approach. Oh, sorry, attitude too much. Same thing. Uh, because I was still in control of these men. I had to get them together again, get them ready for the next battle. And that's, it never seems to end the battles of the DLI in now, the painful saga came to an ignominious end uh, when next day it was found that the Germans had retired from Balignano Spur. Shortly after this, Russell Collins was posted to the carrier platoon support company. Although they were fighting dismounted without their Bren carriers, they still boasted an impressive augmented Bren gun firepower. He'll have, he'll have enjoyed that extra firepower, knowing him. So, so what happens next? Where are we? After Balignano, the 138th Brigade took over the lead role in the never-ending advance across the myriad ridges of Italy, pushing forward and up onto Monte Romano. Yeah, then the 139 took over the lead role, uh, uh, and so 16th DLI are back as Brigade Reserve. And then in turn, they move forward to relieve the 2nd, 5th uh, Leicesters at uh, Kelencordia, which uh, they get there on 19th of October. Uh, then... The battalion, 16th DLI, are tasked by Brigadier Alan Block with the capture of Sassena. Now, Sassena, that's a that's a bigger town, isn't it? Yeah, fairly big, uh, and it uh, lays astride the Savio River, which was crossed by several bridges. B and C Company moved down the ridge to attack on the town, assisted by the Sherman tanks of B Squadron, 10th Hussars. <laughs> Now, I just remembered something. Carry on. Now, Ronnie Elliott had been posted to the signal section with headquarters company, but for this operation, he was required to liaise with the Shermans. And this is Private Ronald Elliott of headquarters company. Yeah, I was laughing because I remember this quote where uh, he, uh, an infantry soldier is never quite satisfied. If they're in a tank, they're not happy. If they're not in a tank, they're not happy. If they're in an aeroplane, they're not happy. And this is what he says. Cooperation between tanks and infantry wasn't particularly good, so they decided they should have a company signaller in a tank on the company network to provide an immediate communication with the troops that were attacking. Because Jackie Wells and I were spare, we went into the tank on this attack and Cessna. We'd always thought that the tanks had this marvellous life because every evening they pull back to some sort of reserve position and lager up, have food and get their heads down. We thought that was great. The poor infantryman tends to get stuck up where they were. I was in this tank and the communication side of it didn't work particularly well because communications were always bloody, pretty bloody, uh, and it... But it didn't really matter because the battle went quite well. The tanks and infantry cooperated by some form of hand signals. Can you imagine those hand signals, Gary? The part that really intrigued me was that I was more afraid inside the tank than I would have been outside the tank. You're more conscious of shot and shell inside a tank. The shrapnel pinged on the sides. It made a noise. It was claustrophobic. It was noisy. You felt as though you were the focal point of any likely attack and that you were vulnerable inside. Outside, you felt that you had a fair bit of room in which to be evasive. <laughs> but you felt specifically in the line of fire inside the tin can. Although the infantry hadn't a great deal to commend it, I think that on balance, I preferred the infantry to a tank man's life. And that's, that's quite... We remember when we did the uh, the tank people, the uh, fifty four fifty four fires, our old favourites. They often said they 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 much rather be in a tank than be infantry. And there you have an infantryman who's saying exactly the opposite. 
Now, the attack developed with B Company on the left, C Company on the right, uh, and Laurie Stringer was with his headquarters section. And this is, once more, Major Laurie Stringer. In a lot of Italian towns, the houses are built right onto the road and there are no gardens on that side. The houses were cheek by jowl on, jowl on the road itself. We moved forwards under a certain amount of desultory machine gun fire from a distance. We were walking along and the tanks were in the centre of the road, really. We were just slightly ahead of the tanks on either side. I was walking along by the side of this tank. I got I got to about ooh, 60, 70 yards of the T-junction in Secessna itself. And suddenly, from the other side of the T-junction, a Spandau opened up and fired on me and my chaps. Wow. Now, with bullets splattling all around, Laurie Stringer had to come up with a plan of attack. So he decided to lead the way, and he goes on. There were no gardens, so we were really sitting ducks. The tank commander saw what was happening, but but I had got to within 25, 30 yards of the T-junction. There was no cover on either side. I said, follow me, Sergeant Major. My idea was to run round into the main street, then get into a house through the front door. It was the only cover I could possibly get. Sergeant Major Clark, instead of following me, he crouched up against the wall and stayed there. The Spandau picked him up and killed him without any trouble at all. Meanwhile, the tank commander of the leading tank had seen what was happening and his cupola swung round and he fired an HE cell, that's high explosive shell, at this house where this Spandau was firing from and the whole of the house came down into the road. It was a fantastic thing. That finished that particular machine gun. It could have been two because the fire was intensive. But there was a lot of machine gun fire coming from other directions at this stage. Now, with machine gun bullets smashing into the walls all around him, Stringer had to get out of sight and undercover. And he goes on. I ran round, got into the main road, ran across the garden into the front of this house in the left-hand corner. I thought he said there weren't any gardens. He's confusing me there. If you go into the house today, you'll see machine gun bullets all the way round the entrance to the house. How they didn't hit me, I shall never know. I flung myself at the door and fortunately it gave way. When I got inside the house, I was met by ten screaming hysterical women. Without being dramatic about it, imagine the situation. I was expecting a German counterattack at any moment, and I had these women to deal with. They were absolutely hysterical. Just a little way down the passage, there was a cellar of some kind, so I put, put my arms around all these women and pushed them down this cellar. <laughs> there were stairs, obviously. <laughs> Just as well, really, isn't it? This all happened in a space of a few minutes. Some of my men got into the house and I stationed them round the windows because I expected the Germans to counterattack. I couldn't move forward because there was so much machine gun fire outside. Wow. I think he was saying that the, the houses on the right-hand side of the road didn't have gardens. They were right up to the road, so right. perhaps he's gone to one on the left. Now, although they made some progress into Sassina, for a while the situation was somewhat fraught. But in the end... Uh, the Germans blew up the various bridges over the Savio as they withdrew overnight. So this is another anticlimax, isn't it? Well, yeah, in the aftermath of the final throes of fighting, Arthur Vizard witnessed a, a terrifying example of the fanatical nature of some of the German soldiers. And this is Major Arthur Vizard of Headquarters Company. He's back then from being wounded. There were some virulent troops... The medical officer moved up a forward regimental aid post and a mortally wounded corporal from the German 91st Light Regiment was brought into the RAP. He'd been blown up in one of the houses in Cecina. It was quite clear he wasn't going to last the distance to the clearing station. 
I lit a cigarette and bent down to put it between his lips, and he spat at me. This man was within minutes of death, and he wouldn't even take a cigarette from me. There were some like that. Most of them were perfectly normal people like ours. They just happened to be Germans instead of British. No, it's uh, it takes all sorts. That's one extreme. Uh, the next story is a slightly more pleasing example of just normality, because uh, uh, not all German soldiers fought to the death, and uh, and some are just <laughs> delighted to surrender. And this is what this is a story. Laurie Chivers. It was actually in his book, uh, which was the history of the 16th DLI, and he loved telling it. And this is what he said happened the uh, next day. Uh, I saw a barber's shop. We'd been fighting in the town 12 hours before that and I happened to notice that this barber's shop was operating. I pushed the door open. I'd got my pistol at the ready and my chaps had got their tommy guns. There in this barber shop was seven chairs with seven people occupying the chairs with barber's robes around them. I walked round to the front and I looked at the feet of these seven people and I saw that they were all wearing German army boots. Then it was really funny. I said, up! Some of them had got lather over their faces. Some were half-shaved. Some had hard, had half haircuts. I got them all up, took off their white sheets, and I marshaled them out and sent them back as prisoners of war. Their war was over. It made Eighth Army news because the paper said, Durham Major captures seven prisoners in a barber's shop. My men were quite delighted. What a tale of heroism. Now, he was also touched at the reception they got from the Italian civilians who treated the 16th DLI as liberators. Yeah, I remember, yeah, he was touched. He said, this was the first big town the division had captured. The welcome given to the battalion by the joyous population was one of tremendous enthusiasm. Women and children clapped and shouted and even flung their arms round the necks of the troops. Partisans paraded the streets, proudly displaying their armbands. The older folks were rather more subdued, but showed their gratitude by placing bunches of flowers on the bodies of those who had given their lives in effecting the relief of the town. In the main square lay shattered busts of Mussolini, which had been thrown from the windows of the fascist headquarters. This was a great day for the Durhams and for the people they'd liberated. Nice. Now, in all, they managed to take 73 prisoners. Now, there was some good news coming for the men of the 16th DLI. The 46th Division was being relieved by the 4th Division and was going back for a well-earned period of rest and recuperation. On the 21st of October, the battalion left Cessna and moved back to the small town of Montefiore. I may have said Cessna. I don't know. I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, it was quite near the scene of the, Gima, uh, the German... Germano. Uh, the Germano fighting. You remember the Germano fighting? I do. I just can't say it. I've got... I'm running in these teeth. Now, Bill Ver or William Ver recalled how shocked he was when he saw the state they had been reduced to. Yeah, and this is the sort of thing that just makes you realise what it's like for these men. He says this, I was there when they came out of the line. That was a time when I realised what we actually looked like after we'd been in action. It was the only time I'd not been in with them myself. Their faces, look, faces looked ashen and drawn. You don't realise when you're in it yourself. It shocked me, that did. Wow. Now, this would prove to be a proper rest, with a mixture of concert parties, film shows, dances, showers, but above all, no necessity to fight their way up to kill Germans high on the next ridge. Yeah, but I think the thing you notice with Collins, you notice with Harry Vick, 
Their morale's just starting to go at the edges. They've been doing it too long. They've been. What's the question you would say? How much longer could this go on? What, the podcast? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cheers, Gareth. Cheers. Well, you'll find out next week, chums. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?